In this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed, not only do we get to find out the scoop on what's going on at Lotus's headquarters in Hethel, but also two corrections. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm on my way to Norfolk, to Hethel, to Lotus's headquarters. I've just paused on the A11 for a moment just to go to the loo and also to clear up a couple of things. I made two minor but worth mentioning errors in the last episode of Gareth Jones of Speed and I'm going to correct them. First of all, I said that the weight of the Evora GT410 Sport that I've been driving for the last couple of weeks was 1,600 kilograms. No, sorry, closer to 1,300 kilograms, 1,361. So apologies for misleading you by 300 kilograms, which is the weight of four people. And as we know, ad lightness is the Lotus mantra, then they wouldn't forgive me, would they, for getting the weight wrong by 300 kilograms? Shameful in Lotus terms. And also, I mispronounced the name of Lotus's big next project. I said it was called the Lotus Evesia, this electric hypercar that they're building. But it's not called the Evesia at all. That's because I'd only ever seen it written down. I've now heard it been said and it's closer to Evia. But it's got a J in it, so if you read it with a J in it, it's going to be Evesia. I suppose a lot of people say Baja, don't they, when they mean Baja. But there you go, it's a British car. I wasn't expecting it to have an Iberian pronunciation of the letter J. I'm Gareth Jones on speed. Right, I'm off to Hethel today. I better get moving, actually, because I've got a very busy day. I want to ask them about the Avaya. I want to ask them about the possible new SUV that's mooted. And I want to know, are you really going to make a new Elan? Or will the next car be called the Elise again? And what's the future for the Evora? It's 10 years old now. Will there be another Evora? All these questions and more I will be able to answer because I've got a date with Matt Windle, who is the Executive Director of Sports Car Engineering at Lotus. So he'll be able to tell me that. And Gavin Kershaw, who is the Head of Vehicle Engineering. And a couple of appointments with some other wonderful people at Wonderful Lotus. All that in this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed. Stationed at Hethel are, in fact, three firms who share the Lotus moniker. Lotus Cars, who make cars, obviously. Lotus Engineering, who do consultancy work for other automotive manufacturers and other non-automotive manufacturers. And Classic Team Lotus, who rebuild and maintain Lotus's grand back catalogue of race cars. And the man in charge of that operation is none other than the son of the Lotus founder himself. Clive Chapman, how wonderful to meet you, sir. How are you? Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. I, it's, a, company. it's a bigger pleasure for me to be here <laughs> than it is for you to have me here, I swear that. I'm a Lotus fan since I was about 10 years old. Mm. And I know that your responsibility here is looking after not just 
some of the cars are pretty much some of the most important cars in my history of passion for motorsport. We're certainly Lotus focused. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of 70s F1 cars, I suppose, is the most prolific in the collection. So. What's the oldest car you've got here? We've got the original Type 12, so that's 1956. Right, wow. That's like paving the way for pretty much everything, isn't it? Yeah, Dad yeah. was just 28 years old. We've got a nice picture of him proudly sitting in the car. The beginning of some, well, not the beginning of, but certainly the first single seater which led to Formula One just a year later, and then a uh, championship just a few years after that. Explain for me the relationship between Lotus Cars and Classic Team Lotus. You're all part of the Lotus Group, are you very separate owners, or are you just like cousins these days? Well, Dad always kept Team Lotus and Lotus Cars separate, and then after he died, my mother kept the team going. It was a Chapman family venture. And it was Team Lotus that established classic Team Lotus. So it's more the Chapman family activity, if you like. But we're very close to Lotus cars, geographically. (laughs) And emotionally, I guess, we share the same passion. And we get on well. And how do you interact? What are the sorts of things where you cross over with Lotus cars these days? Well, very generously, they let us use the test track, which is a great advantage for us. Because we're running up to 40 different cars a year through the workshop and often when work has been done on the cars it's best to shake them down, as we call it, before they go to the track and the owner gets to race around Monaco or wherever, Goodwood in particular, the testing and practice time is quite limited so you really want the car on the button and generally the owners expect a car to be in good condition, obviously. So that's a great advantage, and occasionally Lotus Cars' knowledge of Team Lotus isn't 100% encyclopedic, so they'll ask for help with facts and photos and things like that. But it's a functioning, practical relationship. Which I'm sure your dad would be thrilled to know continues to this day. Well, I'm sure that my dad would be jumping up and down saying don't do it like that um, <laughs> no, matter, no matter how good things were so this is your workshop now that we've come into where you mm. maintain and prep the cars for classic racing and displays exactly yeah. yeah most of the cars are owned by collectors around the world and obviously quite a few brits and europeans but um, japan lotus is big in japan as they say australia america again is another hotbed of lotus enthusiasts and quite a few of them choose to send their cars back to Hethel to have them restored, maintained. There are other people that do what we do. We don't dominate the market as such. I mean, it is a business and people have a choice, so we have to be efficient and focused and make sure we do a good job. And your clients are very, very, very wealthy people, I would imagine. Uh, well, you know, not necessarily. The value of the cars has gone up. We've been doing classic Team Lotus for 25 years now. Some cars have gone up 10 times in that period, but they're still relatively inexpensive cars available, and they do tend to hold their value, and they have tended to all go up in value, and the prices aren't stratospheric. So all the customers are careful with their money. I think it's fair to say, I don't think we've ever had a customer who just throws cash around. Uh And what are you capable of doing here? You know, if a car comes back to you in a sorry state, could you almost rebuild it from scratch? Do you have the ability to replace any component on what's now a 60 or 50-year-old car? 
Yeah, we try and avoid replacing parts as much as we can. I think Classic Team Lotus, more than anyone else, strives to keep the cars original because that's such an important part of the provenance. And that's becoming more and more popular and appreciated now. Originality is number one after safety if you're going to go racing, of course. So we have got the original design drawings. We've got a lot of original spare parts. We've still got some of the original mechanics. We've got quite a few of the original cars in our collection so if another Type 78 comes in, we can refer to our car, you know, that's been in the collection since it ran at Team Lotus originally. But if we need to make a part, we've never been stuck. We've always managed to do it, and we've had to go to extremes at times. And it often comes down to what the customer wants at the end of the day, but we do try and nudge them in the direction of originality and provenance as much as we can. Now, the skill sets of the people who work here and maintain the cars, I would imagine it's hard to find people with the skills to work on cars like this because modern race cars and modern car manufacturing is a much different process, isn't it? How do you find the people? I know you've got some people who've been connected to Lotus for a very long time here, mm. you? apart from yourself. Yeah, I think you could describe us as being analogue as opposed to... <laughs> to digital yeah there's no laptops plugged into any of the cars and most parts on the cars you can take apart and fix them and put them back together and you know they do have a lot in common with a road car or a sports car from that era and particularly in the 60s um, my father was always keen to use a part off the shelf if he could you know try and parallel bits on formula one cars so, um wow if it, really if it works then um yeah so what would no, that I, think the, the I think in particular the, the steering column joint was, really? was a triumph parallel part <laughs> yeah um and on the type 72 your yeah. favorite car the ignition cutoff switch is a bonnet release for a 2cv perfect hmm. can i have a glance in your bays yes um, why not? is there a 77 tub oh so no? close Type 76. 76. Oh, yeah, curses. Very close. There's a 77 over there. Oh, yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's an extreme form of aluminium monocoque that the team was making in the 70s before we pioneered the composite monocoque, at which point suddenly everything got a lot stronger and a lot safer, which was a really important development. But back in these days, we were still basically making a tub and filling it with fuel, and the driver was sitting in the middle of it. Yeah. That's how Formula One was in those days. This is Ronnie Peterson's car from 1974. It didn't really shine in period, but it has won the historic Formula One championship, which is really nice. Wow. Um, The owner, Andrew Beaumont, has been with us many years, and he's a real enthusiast. He does it for all the right reasons. Lewis Cullington, mechanic on the car, managed to get it to finish every point-scoring race and won the championship at the same time. So that's a great achievement. You know, 70s F1 cars weren't the most reliable things <laughs> on the track. And the races are shorter, which helps a great deal. So you're not full fuel. Andrew doesn't drive quite as quick as Ronnie did. But even so, to have that kind of reliability is a great achievement. It's like asking a 60-year-old man to run a 1,500-metre race, though, isn't it? Um, well, Having had all his knee joints replaced, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so maybe not, because our calendar's nowhere near as demanding as it was in period. And so we try and avoid panics and last-minute stuff and all-nighters. You know, we really don't do all-nighters. So in that score, things are better. Plus, it's shorter races, as I say. And we're not on full tanks. and they're, they're, Stress they're, is reduced. Exactly. Yeah. But even so, it's a great achievement, and we're very proud of Andrew to win the championship. Let's just have a look at some of the other gorgeous bits of mm. your dad's engineering. You must feel a tremendous sense of, I'm not just pride, but deeply 
personal pride that stuff like this, this is a uh, 30... Four? No, this chassis. Tell Very me. close again. Come on. It's a Type 25. 25! Oh, yeah. not close enough yeah, for rock and roll. Sorry. Into, into, it's developed into a 33, which is probably what you were talking about. Coventry Climax block, I should have yeah, known. Yeah, V8 Climax engine, which sounds the loveliest engine, I think, on track. And this is Jimmy's car from 63, in which he won the World Championship, owned by Australian John Bowers, who's a great enthusiast for Jimmy and for Lotus. And he is on a mission. He doesn't drive it himself. It's driven by Andy Middlehurst. John is on this mission to have Jimmy's car racing at all the period circuits that it raced in period so that enthusiasts can see and appreciate the car. And frankly, I think he deserves an award for that. It's just great what he's doing. It'll be at Monaco again this year. It's looked after by Bob Dance, who was Jimmy's mechanic in period. Bob, running the car, has won the last four Monaco historics which isn't bad going. And, Not bad um, at all. Going for five in a row. He's dominated Goodwood Revival Meeting for the last few years. Fantastic bit of engineering. I'm just looking deep down the line here. We've got the full gamut of technology from 1958. Yeah, this is, yeah. the, this is the first single-seater, Type 12, and the chassis frame weighs 17 kilos on it. Wow. So this, this is a really good example of what Lotus... lightness. Uh, yeah. There it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, Lotus sequential gearbox, which was a pretty bold step for a young team with very limited resources. And super low profile to minimise drag. Wobbly web wheels. And there's so many innovations in the car. It's just fantastic. They didn't just go, let's make a Formula 2 car. Let's make a completely revolutionary yeah. Formula 2 car. Not for the yeah. sake of it, but because they just pushed every boundary yeah. in every direction. And as I say, it led to going into Formula 1 in 1957 yeah. with Cliff Allison and Graham Hill. And first Grand Prix was Monaco. And Type 12 finished fourth. Wow. Yeah, which isn't bad going. Wow. A few years later, I think Harold Wilson described it as the white heat of technology. Mm. And in terms of motorsport, Colin Chapman was leading that, wasn't yeah, he? He was. Absolutely. Yeah. The spearhead of the white heat of technology. Another space frame chassis. And beyond it, hmm, <laughs> I'm guessing there's very little in terms of clue here. 82, <laughs> well, perhaps? There's a bit of a clue. Is there? On the it, steering wheel. No, there isn't a bit of a clue on the steering wheel. 82? This sh- um, no? Well, it's, it's 1978. Oh, I know it. Uh, yeah, you're, you're dropping off a bit there. I'm yeah. Sorry. And it's, um, it's a Type 79. It's 79.2, and it's the car in which Mario won the 1978 Belgian Grand Prix. Uh-huh. And then Ronnie won the Austrian Grand Prix later uh-huh. as well. So it's got a winner piece for the two drivers who are so famously associated with one of the great cars in F1. So it's a lovely car to have, extremely original. Another pioneering piece of technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ground Effect is a brilliant example of what Lotus was about, and it gave us what we call the unfair advantage, something that people didn't understand to begin with. And then even when they did understand it, they couldn't copy it because they had to have a whole new car. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't one of those things you could copy overnight. So Dad was throwing his hat in the air on a regular basis. A number of one-two finishes at a time when they really didn't happen. You know, they were very rare things. And Mario and Ronnie got on so well. They were great teammates. They were just brilliant people. And it was an amazing time. And then, tragically, Ronnie was killed at Monza in the start line accident. And everything's, you know, put into very sharp and terrible perspective. That was the nature of the sport, though, those days, wasn't it? That kind of thing did happen now and again, yeah. And then, amazingly, the team 
picks itself up and carries on and that's what people did in those days and they still do yeah so a mixed story as ever and a quick look at the final two chassis in the end here. Give me a quick word on both of these, Clive, if you well, would. If you don't what, know what these are, you're going to have to leave. Uh, well, is that a 72? Well, well done. Yes. Well. I should explain that I'm seeing them without the livery. I'm just seeing the raw aluminium chassis. I've got to stroke yeah. this one. I'm going to touch yeah. it. I'm going to touch it. There it is. You wouldn't and this is an early yet. 72, isn't it? Pardon me? An early 72 before um, we went to the JPS? Am I uh, right? Actually, no, sorry. Okay, damn, <laughs> damn. It's 72E5, which was built in 1974 for Jackie X. So the 72 started racing in 1970, as you say, yep. in gold leaf colours. Yep. And then in 1972, it changed to black and gold, and it raced all the way through to 1975. So it did six World Championship seasons. And it won Grand Prix in four of those. And it won five World Championships, two constructors, three drivers. Autosport magazine last year voted it as the greatest Formula One car of all time. I wouldn't disagree with that, as you know. Yeah, we're pleased about that. You see the laurels on the side of the cars. You know, it's like... uh, World War II fighter aircraft with the number of yeah. enemy aircraft that they shot down. Yeah. This car, you know, if it was a World War II fighter, would have been a Spitfire. When we were running the 72s, and the team used to have the wind stickers printed before the race, and <laughs> as it came into the winner's circle, Dad would peel off the sticker, <laughs> slap it on the wing, wave at Enzo Ferrari. As confidence uh, in technology. That was, that was how it was. How wonderful. It was a great spirit and a great time, and the black and gold... And Dad's black hat, and Emerson had massive sideburns and giant flares, and it was just a brilliant, brilliant time. And Lotus, not just on the track, but in terms of sponsorship, you know, the black and gold sponsorship was a really groundbreaking way of promoting a brand globally. And all the press releases and the press info, managing the press, and it was really outstanding. I've said for years that it was your father who single-handedly, with the introduction of massive sponsorship from organisations outside of car companies and motorsport. He turned what was a rich man's hobby into one of the biggest sport businesses on the planet. It was your dad, really. Well, I think probably Bernie Eccleston did that. (laughs) Ultimately. Because the sponsorship money actually was relatively small beers. The technology back in those days was still fairly basic, frankly. It was Bernie, really, who harnessed the power of television, but Dad's technically had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Cool. What happens next for you guys? Now, I know that Lotus's relationship with Formula One teams mm. continued just until not that long ago, where the name mm-hmm. was licensed to teams to run mm. in Formula One. Do you have any connection with running those Lotuses, or is it only the cars that were built here? Generally, just the Heffel cars. So the most modern car we run is a 125, which was a bit of a track car that was built a few years ago. So that actually, we do plug a computer into that, I've got to say. But then we've got some young mechanics who work together with the old mechanics who know one end of a USB stick to another. Um, so, um, But that, that's quite impressive when that goes around. And to get one of the really early cars out together with the later carbon fibre all singing, all dancing thing is a great contrast. And you are busier than ever, I would imagine. Um, well, yeah, we have been busier, and the mechanics achieve an outstanding amount. And we do between 25 and 30 race weekends a year uh-huh. all around the world. Uh-huh. The historic F1 Championship, which the FIA organise, 
three Goodwoods now, Monaco Historic every other year. We do Historic F1 Championship in the States. Um, last year we ran cars at the Chinese Grand Prix, and Brazilian Grand Prix, support races at Grand Prix as well. So it's fantastically busy. As I say, up to 40 different cars come through the workshop. But we're a small team. You know, there's 20 people here and 12 hands-on working on the cars in the workshops. So there's plenty to do. And in 25 years of Classic Team Lotus, we've achieved amazing things. Last year, we got the Royal Automobile Club Restoration of the Year Award for Jim Clark's Lotus Type 38 IndyCar. So we're still doing well. And we're racing in South Africa in January. Then we'll be testing in March. We've got the Jim Clark Revival at Hockenheim in April, Monaco Historic in May, and then it'll just kick off and go crazy busy. Yeah. And the wonderful thing is that despite being historic potential museum pieces, they are still functioning racing cars. Clive Chapman, I salute you, and I'm thrilled to meet you and your dad's work right here thank you well it's a real pleasure to see your clear enthusiasm for the cars and i look forward to you coming to see them going around the track and when you'll explode with excitement i i (laughs) I have done at goodwood and will again (laughs) thank you very much thank you i thought we were going to finish but we had to come upstairs because i didn't know you had this lot here i'm in a room I can see, is that an 88, isn't it? Yeah, Twin got chassis? It. Got it. Yeah, that's the one with the two chassis, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, my Lord, 77, is that there? Uh, or is, that, is that an 80? I've, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. And, oh, my trousers, there's a 72 here in full John Player livery. Oh, gosh. How many cars are here? Let me have a look. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 40 cars of tremendous that. heritage. Yeah. Here's your 125. Well spotted. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, running one of these alongside one of the cars from the 60s. It's a brilliant bit of kit, this. It sounds amazing and it goes like stink. It really yeah. is quick. Yeah. I wonder if I could drive that one day. He wondered. <laughs> Probably never. No, I need a... The re- owner of the 125 owns the 72 you were looking at downstairs. Right. So what a great combination. Both black and gold. How many 125s were built, do you know? Uh, about half a dozen. Seven. You're right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that would be nice to see that with a 72, yeah. wouldn't it? Oh, my yeah. trousers. We've got the later cars as well. There's Ayrton's 97, yeah. in which he won his first Grand Prix. Yeah. And then his 99T over there, which was his first Monaco winning car. So it's a real range of Lotus history. Oh, my God. The gas turbine car. Oh, I am no respecter of royalty. You know, I'm a Republican. I believe in an independent republic. However, I feel I'm in a room with motorsport royalty here, yeah. and this is the sort of royalty I acknowledge. It is a lineup, isn't it? This is incredible. Utterly incredible. I've got to look at the gas turbine car. The 58. Oh, gosh. Oh, with this? Yeah. oh, hang on. I've, I'm mistaken, restoring, aren't I? Sorry. We are restoring the gas turbine car at the moment, and it is, in fact, over there. Let's go and have a look at that. I got confused there for a moment. The Formula One version, the 56B, which Emerson raced at Monza in 1971. Funnily enough, we've just got an engine for it, and we're hoping to have it running in time for 50 years since Emerson raced it in 71. That's yeah. the plan. Yeah. And he's very keen to drive it again. We've left it entirely original. It's exactly as Emerson got out of it, other than we've taken the, the bits apart and put them back together again. 
we've replaced the brake lines. That's the only bit we've replaced. <laughs> Everything else is original, and it'll be so cool to see him going around Monza again in the car. So that's the plan. I'd like to be there to see that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Monza's always a pleasure. And you know, historic meetings generally are not busy. And the spirit of the place, particularly Monza, I don't know what it is about. You sit in the paddock and it's just a load of tarmac, but there's something about the place. And hearing this whistling around the track again, because it is an extraordinary noise, will be a great moment. Wow. I'll be there for that. Clive, can't thank you enough. Thank you very much indeed. I'm in for another treat at Lotus. Um, being driven now in the very car that I've just spent two weeks on the road in to the Lotus Test Track here by Gavin Kershaw. Do we call you a Lotus Test Driver, Gavin? Yeah, in a roundabout. I'm Director of Product Integrity and Attributes, so part of my job is understanding how Lotus drives, keeping the DNA within our products, and also setting the targets for our new vehicles as well, which you can imagine, things like the Avira is really exciting. Extremely exciting. That's a heck of a piece of tech with the sound of things. But there again, so is the Avora. The Avora has evolved quite significantly from the car I remember being launched in, was it 2008 now? 2008, 2009, yes. Yeah, yeah same with any vehicle that evolves, and it was ahead of its time then with the aluminium architecture from the Elise. And it's just been slowly characterised into more definitions. So cars like the 410 Sport that we're driving today is we've we've taken this and we've moved it into the ultimate form of lightness. So things like carbon fibre roof, titanium exhaust, forged wheels, all things like this. Where the more cruising 400 has glass where we have carbon fibre or GRP. So it's just working out exactly the exact usage for the car and what customers are expecting. And it is a proper track device, this, isn't it? Yeah, all Lotuses, you'll see them, you know, if you go to any track days, there's Elise's, Exige's, Evora's driving around. But with this, it was a real focus. That was our definition. We started to put the Cup 2 tyres on, stiffer suspension, so stiffer springs, dampers, take some roll out of the car, more downforce. Um, Downforce is always great if you can do it as the way Lotus does it, and we reduce the drag or maintain the drag but increase the downforce. And that just gives you high-speed stability. The Cup 2 tyres give you more lateral assistance. So when you're cornering, you'll have higher G-force. When you're braking, higher G-force. So, yeah, we're a real track toil. It's a complete package. You know, you can't have a faster car with a faster engine without better brakes. You can't have better brakes without better tyres. You can't have a car capable of doing 130 miles per hour, well, 186 in this case, without having appropriate aerodynamics to run at those sort of speeds. It's a complete integrated package, isn't it? Yeah, and that's from our lowest horsepower leases and even sevens of years ago is that we want the right brakes for the right power to the right weight you don't ever drive a Lotus and just praise it for its out-and-out acceleration or its braking performance or just its handling, you know. It's to make all of those work together in unison, and that's what gives you the enjoyment as the driver. It feels exciting to drive at 40 miles per hour as well as at 140 miles per hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't comment about going (laughs) at 140 miles per hour, but I don't know, what's the top speed on the track here today we're likely to achieve, you know? Yeah, the top speed on the track today will be up around about 130, 140 miles per hour, slowing that down in around about 150 metres down to 40 miles per hour for chicanes. And the test track here at Hethel 
is designed to have lots of complicated corners where we're flicking the cars from right to left at maximum g maximum roll angle which is the real challenge for mid and rear engine cars you've got that polar moment of inertia where the heavy part wants to go forwards yeah so that's where the test track for us is you know we use it daily hourly to develop all of our cars I experienced the ability of this car to change direction on roundabouts. It does it effortlessly at, you know, safe public speeds, I have to say. I can't wait to see how it performs on the track here. We're waiting for a slot, are we? There's someone already out there? Yeah, we're now pulled up to the barrier, so open the barrier and we'll go out and see what the car can do. Cool. Lotus 8 to base, over. Go ahead, Yes, yeah, Gavin, track entry for ride and drive, over. Okay, thank you. There are strict protocols to follow. You can't just drive out onto this circuit. How long is the circuit, Gavin? Um, 2.2 miles. So Good size, yeah. yeah. Just under four kilometres. Um, we have kerbs. It's an FIA surface. But we strictly say it's for testing and proving purposes. We hold some sprints here. But it's a controlled environment, controlled surface, so we know that when we're doing performance calibration or a particular test, we can repeat that test the following week and the surface wouldn't have degraded. We'd never put any treatment on the surface or anything like that, just clean it with water and the Right, controls. so it's consistent. So you've got a stable benchmark to measure your cars against, I guess? Yeah, yeah you have to, because during the development side of a project you will have what we call a tyre submission. So the tyre manufacturer will send you a particular tyre that you've asked for. Um, You then evaluate it, you'll give them feedback, and it may be up to six or seven weeks later where you test their next submission. And you have to know that if you disliked it for a particular reason, when you reprove it, drive it on the test track that nothing's changed right, so yeah. it's that calculated methodical approach to testing that, yeah. that gives us the advantage it's a long time since i've been around this circuit i was just working it out it was actually 25 years ago that i was allowed to drive around this circuit with alistair mcqueen who was the great lotus development driver for many years and I'm trying to remember where the chicane was that we went through. But uh, I've told you this story on the programme where I came through a chicane at 100 miles per hour and was told simply to jink left and right. And I'm looking forward to doing it in this car. Yeah, the circuit's changed slightly. That used to be our tight chicane halfway down the main straight. And people used to think you were mad approaching this walled chicane at you know, over 100 miles per hour and just jinking right, left. But now um, we have a proper infield chicane, again with the curbing. And again, you learn to drive the circuit, but perhaps if the tyres moved in days of old, you'd be half a second quicker. Yeah. So it was all a bit, you know, science, data logging, things like this. So we're now going exactly through where that chicane was, the old runway. And then we come to what we call the north hairpin. And this is designed to really roll the car. So it's a constant radius corner. 180 degrees you can feel the cars at sort of max roll yeah and that allows you to tune the spring and tire and things like that you have the dampers aren't working at that point it's just sitting there so that's how you read how much mechanical grip a car has when you're just not using the maximum it can be driver position line smoothness of steering that affect the car but on a corner like that it's the car that takes it that's interesting so it's not about ragging it to the max it's about finding a neutral load on the car or sort of an even load on the car I get it Ah. yeah so through here we're now going through some transients so you'll feel the car again it'll get close to maximum G maximum roll all the way through and then we have to change that instantly 
to the other direction. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking at a control procedure where we can look at if the car wants to understeer, oversteer, if it bounces a little bit where the damping's not quite right. And it's that precision and that constant repeatability where if we just use airfields, you don't have to be that accurate. Right. You know, where one thing that Hethel is, you have to be accurate. <laughs> and this is a good car to do that in. The car itself is completely under control you can probably hear some clattering around and that's my bag on the back seat which i'm just going to try and lay flat so that doesn't clutter so you can probably you'll hear the sound of the supercharger you'll hear we'll open that cut we've got various electronic stability modes we have what we call tor which is what the car's in initially and that's designed to stop any slip in the car so it doesn't want to slide it will protect you and it actually recognizes understeer so if you have too much steering wheel angle and the car's not turning as if you're on an icy roundabout the car can calculate that and actually apply the brakes to help you yeah then we have sport mode which increases the you'll hear the exhaust note but it also allows you to slightly drift the car into a race mode where you're really working the limit slip diff and all the traction and then in a totally off position where you can really start to push the car around so we're in off but so you'll see that you can start to feel the car. Yeah, feel the back end working there and you correcting as we exited the chicane and we accelerate into the yeah. constant radius at the end. Would yeah. you call this the airfield hairpin? So you can feel the car's Yeah. And it's moist out there today. Yeah, so, so the tyres will start to gain temperature and that's where they really start to work. So yeah. There's not any much spray coming off the tyres, so the car's tyres are going to the tarmac all the time. It's not draining water. Then heavy on the brakes, you can see breaking down at about 1g touch touch the curb feel the car doesn't get bounced around by the curb flick the other way round past the start finish and the pit area then these are what we call the real low said transient corners where we've got the car tucked in right left right left and the car has to be really poised here but why would the car gives you so much confidence is if you haven't picked up already is it feels like it rotates around your hip. yes yeah exactly we're sat at the center of rotation yeah it doesn't feel like an oil tanker where the yeah. car's turning from behind or too much and you can see drift around lovely oh that was a an attempt by Gavin to get the back end to break away successfully and under control as we exited the end hairpin and we're still in touring mode as we approach it about 120 miles per hour into this is what's called windsock so we're windsock yeah we'll exit around about 110 miles per hour which is like a motorway slip road yeah up to around about 130 140 and then we're going to break down you can feel the ABS and within 150 metres we're down to 40 miles per hour oh, through the chicane with no drama that's the main thing no drama whatsoever and a lovely sound too it's fantastic sound the supercharger the, the sound just builds we can drift right up to the barriers i think if i attempted that i'd be in the barrier going i'll let you do that yeah runoff around heffel is something you do if you crash i think <laughs> <laughs> Again, what we'll do is we could drive the circuit again in a moment, but I'll just show you the what we said the tour mode is. We have a what we call a dynamics area, and it's 30 meter radius, and we use this to do oil surge work, tire work. And if I drive around, it's quite puddly today. Flat to the floor, 
This is flat out. And it won't allow you the back end to it step won't do out. Anything. This is in tour mode, yeah. keeping it all under control. So that's you know, if you're a little bit tired, you're driving home, wet roundabout, that's what we try and engineer our cars to do. And then yeah. as we said, you can put it into race mode. And you can drift. And we're now drifting in a perfect radius on a, well, it looks like a skid pan, a large circular asphalt area. And I've been thrown against it. That's beautiful, Gavin, beautiful. So that's sport mode, and you've got another mode as well, race. Yeah, so race, really, it's... The modes allow you at different speeds to have different amount of slip. So when you're doing, effectively, drifting like that, the vehicle speed isn't that high, probably only 60, 70 miles per hour. So it will allow that amount of slip. But when you're in race mode and off, you're allowed to do that at 80, 90, 100 miles per hour. Yeah. But then really over 100 miles per hour, we want the car to be really stable. So if you have to do a maneuver on the motorway, something like that, the car takes control, it doesn't allow you to slip. And then obviously off is off, apart from the ABS. Lotus is known for its lightweight, its extraordinarily well-developed chassis, its compliant suspension, and also bloody good electronics, eh? Yeah, it's a part now where Lotus has to embrace it, and with the new technologies that's coming, as we said in the Avaya, with torque vectoring, rear steers, and things like this, all of the future applications of car electronics, that's the way you can change character at speed. But Lotus is still fantastic. You know, this doesn't have electronic damping, it has a hydraulic steering, but you can feel the change character, the surface, if it's gripping and slipping at all the speeds. And the big thing with Lotus is, shouldn't surprise you, you should be able to drive effortlessly around here and think, how did that just happen? <laughs> and that's when we know we've got a good car. Do you reckon I could do it? Yeah, definitely. Worth a shot. <laughs> All right, I'm going to swap over. going to come around that side. This could end in tears. I'm hoping it won't. And I'm hoping that the car will do everything it possibly can to prevent that from happening, because there's no guarantee that I can deliver safely. Right, swapping over. I'm going to give the recorder to Gavin to hold. Can I give you this to hold, Gavin? No problem at all. Uh, make sure I'm the right length distance yeah, if you put the headphones on then you can hear when we're on and off mic as well holding it round about there is the best compromise that's about perfect yeah? okay. and I'm completely reliant on you and your instruction oh hang on, not quite right yep and the steering wheel's up and down in and yep. out as well and it's again it's one of those things that we pay particular attention to you have to feel at home in the car you know, all the primary controls have to be easily to hand where you remember them being. Nothing out of stretch or out of reach. Let's see how this goes, shall we? Okay, so we drive out of pit lane exit. And with the high torque of the car and the RPM range, we can do a lot of this part of the circuit in third gear. So you can just concentrate on your braking and steering. Right. We don't put out marker cones or anything of that cheating stuff. We actually let the drivers decide where they're going to go. So we're going to just clip this curb here. You can feel the instantaneous response of the car. Turn, clip that curb. And then we go straight ahead. See, and then we're just going to brake gently down into second gear for the south hairpin. Turning in. Feels quite slippery through here. Start to accelerate a little bit. 
feel the car starting to help you up into fourth gear, third gear and then fourth. Then this is really apex to apex through the centre curves. And this was designed so you could feel the steering response of the car. Oh, well, I wasn't really pushing it there. First and then time gently around. on the brakes here. And then this is the long sweeping windsock, so nice and accurate through here. Build the speed. Down the main straight. So we're north of 100 miles per hour already. Long <laughs> Then this is a real firm brake, so we're going to brake hard about now. Press as hard as you can, you can feel the car really bite, but it shouldn't weave around. Down into second gear. That's it, through the chicane. That was effortless. It should be, there we go. It's only got my exit right there. <laughs> it's really greasy out here, it's had the whole week, you know, Christmas weeks to get a little bit of moss. <laughs> I That's can it. feel the car helping me. That's I... it, and then nice and gentle through this corner, not too fast. That's it. Just helps you feel it just grip and slip. Amazing, amazing. When you put idiots like me in a car, you need to know that the car is the best possible car for an idiot. Yeah, but also with the Lotus, we try and teach our our owners why it's doing that because you know they want to be able to explore it. So on the brakes firmly here, stand third gear. That's it. Then just clip the curb. That's it. And not too much throttle. That's it, then through, not too much throttle through this bit, just let it, that's it, and then again. So you can see that the circuit here is all about compromise, you have to not go as fast as you want, because yep. the next corner is going to put you offline, so yep. dab at the brake, in, and not too much throttle. So it's all about smoothness, progression, as if you're on a country road, you know, it's not just about what speed I'm doing, it's about where am I, how's the car react. So on the brakes again, second gear. Nice and gentle with it, and start to pick the throttle up. That's the way. As um, Jackie Stewart would say, it's as though you've got an egg balanced in a bowl on the front of the car, and you don't want to throw it out of the bowl with any sharp movements. I've been quite gentle now because uh, I think I've probably reached my limit. I know my limit. I'm an enthusiastic, theoretical driver, but an inexperienced track driver. So I think end of this lap I don't think I'm going to attempt to go into sport mode or, uh, or race mode let the car help me as much as possible and you know what you're doing is you're helping the tyre you've got four pieces of rubber holding you to the surface so that's it so it's on the brakes firmly really firm into the kerb good not too much throttle turn rotate the car drive it out perfect well, I'm impressed we got away with that one and then back on the brakes long so you just have to wait for the car if you imagine it's just waiting for it and waiting for it and you know part of my job here was when I designed the top gear track we put the hammerhead in for exactly that reason you designed the top gear track yeah I designed the top gear track so no! hammerhead follow through all of those were put in there for particular reasons to exhibit issues with cars or good cars from bad Gavin I am deeply impressed not only with your facility your skills your car and just about everything that Lotus do today and uh, quite frankly I think I should quit while I'm ahead that's it, so not, too, that's it. not too much of the throttle not here not too much of the throttle through here and then go that's it then we're back to the transient corner so take your time through here touch the apex apex again dab at the brake then just feel your way through so lovely wow this is oh, so satisfying if only I remember that there's another corner after the one I've just done <laughs> 
See, and then this is the, the yeah. hairpin, so. Should have done that earlier, shouldn't I? Yes. But it's nice to actually have a manual gearbox. Oh, it so means so much more to me than any pedals. I know exactly, well, a better idea where I am with a manual gearbox. Yeah, and it teaches you to be smooth, you know, again, in clutch engage and all of that thing. Yeah. Which people are losing some of that, you know, finesse. Yeah. You know, well, the days have gone where you, you know, if we disconnected the ABS, you'd think twice about braking, and now it's even becoming that with gear changing. Amazing. And that sound. That's only showing off for the radio during that <laughs> And where's the exit? Round there. Yeah, so on the brakes. And the Avira will be probably touching somewhere around about 180 where we just wow. went up to. So a whole new level of performance. Tits on the brakes, second gear. Then just and have you been driving that car around this circuit? Yes, yeah, the testing started here as well. So it's really important that, again, we know this is a benchmark. We know what cars behave like. We actually drive, as everyone does, all types of cars on this surface. So we want to know what our car is. And you can see, here? yeah, we're just going to exit just to the left, just as we start to go around this corner. And you can see we're really secure here as well, fields for miles, so we can see if anyone's spying on us. Yeah. And lots of security cameras, so we know the advice is safe here when we're driving it. Wow. What a pleasure. And to think that the legends of Lotus that have driven down that main straight, you know, it's incredible. I'm uh, privileged to be given the opportunity to do something like that in a piece of technology like this with someone with your skills Gavin thank you very very much no it's been a pleasure that's it just pull up to the exit everyone should have one of these in their back garden shouldn't they <laughs> <laughs> I'd never leave home if that was the case Lotus 8 exit at the circuit thank you we were discussing just before I got in the car that Lotus built track cars which are good for more than just one lap you know, after a few hot laps like that, the brakes, you can't smell them, the car, the engine isn't hunting. I could go and now drive this car for 150, 200 miles. Yep. All through traffic and it wouldn't overheat. And you haven't got a sweat on, you know, that yeah, it's still yeah. full of fuel. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've just yeah. done 10 laps or so of a racetrack and let me just keep going straight out towards the security. And that's the thing that we want to be durable, that people can own a Lotus and go, you know what? I'm going to go and have a little bit of fun in it. I don't want to be caught by the police. I'm going to do it in the right place. Yeah. And the car will take it. You have to go straight. That's it. And then just turn with that blue car and go all the way down. We don't want to be seen as undurable. Yeah. You know, the, there's so many of the old wise tales of Lotus. We have progressed so far where ownership experience of a Lotus now is pleasurable. You know, the dealers are fantastic. The facilities here, you know, we're a global brand. We sell cars in America, China, everywhere around the world. And it's part of that we're not a cottage industry and that's where the excitement is now going forwards yeah it's not blokes in sheds knocking something together that will last a lap this is a sophisticated and usable piece of technology yeah what a great thing it's enjoyable you're telling me <laughs> definitely thank you very much Kevin pleasure oh, my real, pleasure real entirely pleasure. Man. thank you thank you 
I'm standing outside the front door of Lotus's HQ, admiring the Evora GT410 Sport that I've just spent two weeks driving and ragged around this track. And also very much looking forward to a conversation with the man who designed this car, Russell Carr. It's lovely to see you Good again. To see you again yeah. It's been a long time since we last were in the same room. And I remember the day on which this was launched at the Motor Show. And I think I said to you, I like it, but I don't like it as much as I like the Elise. But I think it's grown. I think you've grown the car. You've evolved the car. Explain for me how you've been allowed to sort of fiddle with the Evora in the last 11 years now? Yeah, something like 11 years. Yeah, I think like all designers, we always have a new idea, a better idea that we want to do. It's been great with the Evora. We've been able to evolve the design over that period. And it's not just about, obviously, the aesthetic side. The technical side of the car has evolved. So over that period, we've gone from a 280-horsepower car to a 410-horsepower car. And that has a big effect on what we do. We're obviously looking for more cooling on the car, we're looking for much better aerodynamics in terms of downforce and things like that. And that gives us a reason to do what we do. We, don't, like any designers, we sometimes like to get a bit arty, but we're also, being Lotus people, we're very much about combining form and function together, mixing the two. So when you look at this car, you can see the basics of the car, which were there on day one back in 2009. You can see a car that is very sculptural. It's got very dramatic surfaces, the way it nips in at the waist, you know, emphasising the rear haunches of the car, all things that we recognise on a lot of Lotuses. The teardrop cabin, which is an aerodynamic feature, but yep. you can recognise that from race cars, etc. So that's all still there, the very dramatic wrap-around visor screen. But areas that we've done a lot of work on, working from front to back of the car, the front bumper, this has changed because we wanted to give the car more presence on the road, make it more modern, taste change over period. So we have bigger openings which give the car more presence, but also they're there for functional reasons. We want more air in to cool the car. And around that area, there's a lot of aero work as well. So when you look in the corner intakes, you'll see smaller intakes, and these are what we call air curtains. So that inducts the air in the corner and evacuates it just on the trailing edge of the bumper in front of the wheel. And this smooths the airflow over the wheel, reduces drag, stops air getting in there in terms of creating lift, etc. So it's a nice technical detail when you look at it. Everyone likes sports cars looking at ducts and vents on cars, but it's there for a reason. We keep at the front the very traditional lotus mouth, this sort of trapezoidal shape, which you can trace back to the cars of the 60s, and you even see on some of the racing cars of the 60s. But it's done in a more powerful way. And, of course, you can see... Even on the front of the car here, the mix of materials we use on this car, much more technical, race car inspired. You can see the carbon fibre bits, and there's a lot of carbon fibre used on this car, both in terms of aesthetic quality, but also in terms of weight saving. So over the years, the car's actually got lighter, which is unlike humans, which yeah. normally get heavier with age, <laughs> speaking from experience. And me, boy, uh, yeah. But we've done a lot of work to make this car lighter. Lightweight is obviously core to Lotus philosophy, makes the car go quicker, turn quicker, stop quicker, feel better to drive. And I know you know from experience driving this car that it's a very Lotus-type product. Right? It's definitely Lotus in every possible way the lightness the performance the sexiness of the car and that's something you can't paint on top of a car you have to start with you know, good engineering but you're given the role of styling a car as well as designing it aren't you well i'm responsible for all the aesthetic side of the, yeah. the cars and there's a team behind me doing it 
when it goes well, it's all my work. When it, <laughs> when it goes wrong, it's, it's the other people's fault. But no, there's a team in the studio. Currently, we're about 60 people, and that's because we're working on multiple cars, not just like the old days where maybe there was one or two cars you know, on the go. And we plug into the rest of the team on site here. We represent the engineering group, the dynamic side of things. I know you're talking to Gavin Kershaw and people like that as well. But we're very much about the aesthetics. But as I say, with the aesthetics, we think very much about the functionality of the car, how it's going to perform, the aerodynamics and things like that, what it's like to drive. So we work with people like Gavin to make sure all the controls are put in the right place and things like that as well. What's the future of the Evora now? Is this a Zenith or is there somewhere else you can go with this car? What happens next? Well, we can't ever say, can we, whether or not we're the Zenith. There's always something better in the back of your mind. It's whether or not there's an opportunity to do that. But I think, you know, where the car is at the moment, it's a fantastic fantastic car i'm lucky enough i drive a navora regularly an earlier one but these latest cars are fantastic to drive they sound great i think as you pointed out you get a very positive reaction from other road users they kind of share your enjoyment don't think you're trying to be too flash but enjoy looking at the car as well it's a bit like asking a parent to choose between their children but of the Evora and the second generation Elise and the Exige which are all your designs are your, yeah. yeah do you have a favorite which one do you have a soft spot for I've got a soft spot for all of them but I must say most of last year I was driving an Exige every day and I love that car that's that's fantastic it's a little bit of a hooligan car sometimes because it's loud and it looks like a little racing car but it's fantastic to look at it's an experience to drive every time you get in it and that's for me what a sports car should be you don't buy a sports car on rational reasons you know there are cars which are more practical in terms of space luggage many other things it's got to grab you by the heart grab your senses and that exige the looks the sound the way it drives is fantastic i mean it's like a go-kart you know small steering wheel very direct the way you turn the wheel to the way the wheels turn at the front of the car you know it, it's it's like an extension of your body when you drive it so i love that car then it's fantastic car. as a musician the next song you write is always the best song you'll ever write and i know that the next song you've written the next car you've designed is the avaya yeah how did that go how challenging was that was that liberating because it's a very different machine in so many ways and yet you've got to keep lotusness in it how do you start it's very liberating to design it to use your words i think we had a lot of pent-up creativity because we'd had some difficult financial times we hadn't been able to do as many new cars as we wanted to and suddenly we had this clean sheet of paper and we could do what we wanted to and then really exciting obviously we had the opportunity to design an all-electric car And then not just an all-electric car, but the most powerful electric car in the world. And at a price point that is, you know, a a very exotic hypercar end of it. So a different market, completely free reign. So it's a designer's dream. You know, we're lucky we design sports cars as our everyday job, which is very, very special. But to design a hypercar is every designer's ultimate dream. And to get to do that was something just mind-blowing. So were you given a blank sheet of paper or is it more difficult? My mate Zog says it's much more difficult to design a great little super mini than a hypercar. Is that fair comment? Well, I think any design programme is a challenge. I think it worked very easily for us on that car. I think Lotus Values, 
on that particular car there was a direct connection the type of surface language we use so there's a continuity you can see a connection between this evora we're standing next to and the avaya you can see that language developing onto that so we had the ground rules in there the difficulty obviously is when you're working with all the packaging constraints the aerodynamics the manufacturing constraints that's the real challenge that comes into it and to make sure that design intent is not lost it's very easy step by step to dilute what you're trying to do in the first place because you sort of back off and go well that's a fair compromise but you can lose a car quite easily and we were really lucky on that car through our own tenacity i mean we ate, slept and drank that car for whatever the period you know we started at the autumn of 2017 on it but we were obsessive we drove everyone to distraction with our obsession with detail and things like it. but equally all the engineers the technical people we've been working with as well you know they've gone along with it as well they've had the same level of enthusiasm so i think together it's got us match fit again for doing the new range of cars we're working on at the moment i don't know how much i can ask you about the new range of cars i know what's mooted i know what's whispered you can't tell me anything can you i can't we've got a whole product range that's planned which is going to be really exciting but obviously we can't disclose what we're doing because what we do is about the element of surprise and giving people something fresh and unexpected so we can't disclose what we're doing in the future but at the moment we've got great cars like evora exige and lease and if your pocket's a bit deeper you can buy an avaya as well i don't think i could stretch to what is it two million pounds yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think it depends how you're going to spec the car. Or up, when but. the price comes down to one million, even then I couldn't afford it. But Russell, man, it's a joy to talk to you again. Good to talk and to you. Love your work, man. Love Thank your you. work. Thank you. Just when you think you completed the conversation, there's another <laughs> element to talk about. I've been brought into the... Uh, is this a styling studio or the design studio? What we like to call it design studio. Design so studio. Styling, I think, probably sort of started to fade out as a term in the oh, really? 70s, probably. Ah. Uh, but I think design we like because we're ultimately responsible for the visual side of the car. But to do the visual side of the car you have to be aware of every aspect of the vehicle. So you're working with design then, basically. So we usually design, and then the guys who do the technical side are engineering, usually. And in here is an example of Lotus's latest bit of design and engineering, the Evia, which a car I was calling the Avija because I'd only ever read it, Russell. I'm sorry about that. I didn't know. And it's not a real car. It's a clay design mock-up, would you call it? What would you call this? This is a clay model. So this is what we use for the development process. As you probably know, designing cars, we have many different tools to progress the design. So we start off with 2D sketches in Photoshop. We then have scale models, full-size clay models. We have digital models. You're looking at the moment at a clay model. So the construction of this is there's a metal chassis underneath and then a collection of wooden foam and then on the top of that is clay. And this is what we use to develop the design of Evaya. It's a one-to-one model, I should say, full-size. And it is not a big car russell is it it is compact it's pretty much the same as an avora it's just over 4.4 meters long so an avora is i think just under 4.4 it's wider than avora it's just as these sorts of cars are these hypercars just under two meters wide deliberately we kept it under two meters fought the urge to go over it because people that use these cars use them typically on tracks 
or they are swanning around London or wherever and want to get into car parks. And if you get wider than that, then suddenly you've got a problem getting through pay barriers and things like that. So just under two metres wide. And then I think we're about 11, 22 millimetres tall. So typical of this type of car. But the package of the car is very usable. The interior space is not dissimilar to an Avora when you sit inside there. So you don't sit incredibly close to your passenger like you do in some of the hypercars we've got very good visibility out of the car and very special interior which creates a very different feeling when you sit inside it very open feel to that as well how do you add lotusness to a car i mean this car it's more sculpted than the avora it looks to my Mm. eyes more like the elise you know it's got flair and edges to it we have a few things we obviously look at our back catalogue when we're designing a car and You've mentioned some of the more recent cars, Elise, Exige, which, of course, we want a continuity with those cars. But if you're familiar with the sports racing cars of the 1960s, things like the Type 30, the Type 40, 23, they have a very similar language as well. These sort of very prominent haunches, the surfaces that go over the wheels, very muscular-looking, very curvaceous. That's a very Lotus trait. We're not the only people who do it, but you can say that we have a history in doing it. From where we're standing at the moment in the car as well, really important how the cabin is sort of hunkered down between the wheels. Mm-hmm. It makes the car look planted to the road. It looks like the car's going to be agile and dynamic to drive, which is how it drives. And, of course, there's a great reference in that sort of form language to what you see on racing cars where you see the cabin yeah. sort of slammed down between the wheels. LMP. Exactly. And we reference, obviously, the cars of the past, but also modern LMP cars in terms of influencing our design as well and you've achieved that by not having a flat platform with the battery pack underneath the driver but behind the driver where the engine would be very important to have the batteries behind the driver from a design point of view really important because of the proportions if you put a skateboard slab you're putting another 120 mil into the height of the car and obviously visually cars looking low immediately says sports car but obviously technically it's good as well because you minimize the cross-sectional area so you minimize drag on the car so we wanted to put the battery pack behind the driver and of course you get weight distribution as well you've got the classic mid-engine thing then as well low polar moment of inertia it allows the car to change direction very easily very intuitively for the driver as well and the batteries really opened up all kinds of opportunities for us because it's a very small compact unit behind the driver we were able to do this very extreme sculpture you see on the car. So when you see the car, first of all, you think, well, this is just a conventional, hopefully beautiful-looking car. But as you walk around the car, you realise there are a lot of open areas on the car, porosity, as the aerodynamics guys call it. And we said it's like the car's being carved by air. There are all these passages where the air flows through the car as well as over the top of the car. Most noticeable just in front of your rear wheels where you've got huge sculpted Venturi there. Yeah, that's what we call three-quarter Venturi. And the idea with that is you remove the blockage of the air, you allow the air to move very quickly through the car, which helps reduce drag. For us, it's just a good reason for doing some outrageous sculpture on the car, something very unique. And... I think we all gravitate, particularly on sports cars, to shapes that draw your eye through the car. So all these openings and very curvaceous surfaces draw your eye through and over the car, creating speed, making it look very dramatic. And, of course, that three-quarter Venturi you just talked about 
it terminates with a very dramatic rear end where those venturis exit the body. So you get these two great holes on the back of the calf, which just stand back. Exit and funnels, they are. Exit yeah. funnels, exactly. Yeah. And then they're ringed by the rear lights for something very, very distinctive. And that's quite a new thing, that the fact that we can do that since the introduction of LED lighting, yeah. that you can now use your lighting to highlight... Well, holes in the car, if you like. I mean, that's a new stylistic thing, isn't it? Yeah, technology gives us opportunities all over the car, and that's certainly one of them. And when we first came up with the idea, it was a sense, this is a great idea, but will it actually really work? Will we get all the legal requirements? Because you have to have a certain light intensity at a certain place on the car. And miraculously, we did make it work, but... The net result is when they're on, they're like two big afterburners on the back of the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then a nice touch is in those three-quarter Venturis, we also have some theatrical lighting. So when the car's parked, there's some small LEDs in there so you can illuminate the tunnel. So it's like looking inside an ice tunnel or looking down a bobsleigh run or something like that. It's just very interesting to look at. You've got some movable surfaces on the car as well, apart from just the rear spoiler or the rear wing. Yeah, we're actually quite simple in terms of the active surfaces because we thought from a Lotus point of view, the less parts moving, the greater simplicity, the greater weight efficiency on the car. But we do have an active wing which raises and the pitch changes. And then in the diffuser, the Venturi area, we've got two big DRS flaps which obviously tune according to whether you want downforce or drag reduction in it. So a lovely reference to what people see on a Sunday when they're watching Formula One, but rather than DRS being in the wing, it's in the diffuser. You've done away with mirrors. You've got cameras for your replacement for the wing mirrors. And am I right in seeing a camera for the rear view mirror as well? So we have three feeds, one on each door and one in the centre of the car, as you say. So the one in the centre on the rear glass, that feeds the central mirror. And then the ones on either side on the doors, they feed mirrors which are placed on the interior door trim. And we did that, A, because it's modern, you know. The whole point of this is it should be a statement of intent, a technical tour de force for Lotus, putting Lotus back where it was before, always leading with things like the Elise and the Esprit in its day. But also because in terms of efficiency, it's a lighter solution, it's a more aerodynamic solution than putting a big, heavy, traditional mirror on the car. So... It kind of ticks all the boxes. It's innovative, it's technically correct. And what's the legal position in terms of cameras on cars? In Europe you can do it, can you do it in the States? So we can do it for European small series, not a problem at all. And as far as the States goes, in terms of the sort of show and display for these types of cars, we're okay as well. But at the moment, yeah, mainstream, it's not fully homologated yet. The people that buy this type of car, they can use it, so we're okay with it. You got a favourite bit on the car? A favourite angle? My favourite of this car is just looking at the car from the rear because it says everything you want to say about a sports car. You know, you've got the width, the muscularity, the car hunkered down, and then you've got this completely unique rear end in terms of the exits from the Venturis, but also this very extravagant sculpture that you see in in profile of the car at the rear. So I think that's my favourite on it, but also the interior is, you know, something very special as well. Russell, it's a pleasure to see your work and to be given the chance to talk about your work in front of a first iteration of it. It's a mega Elise, is what I think it is. It's like an Elise on steroids and then some, which is a great starting point and a great place to go. Thank you. Thank you.
Whilst Russell Carr is in charge of the overall design of the Avaya, and indeed the still-secret range of new cars that will soon emerge from the mark, the person accountable for the technical side of those cars is the Executive Director of Sports Car Engineering at Lotus, Matt Windle. I put it to him that this was indeed a huge responsibility. Yeah, it's good. I mean, my responsibility at Lotus is for all of the sports car program engineering and all of the program management. So day-to-day delivery of the programs and actually getting the cars ready for production is what I sleep and live. And yeah, it's a very exciting time, but there's a lot of work going on for us. At first glance, Lotus making the Avaya seems like a bit of a left turn because to most people's eyes you don't have a history with electric vehicles but that's not necessarily true is it no it's not we've produced electric vehicles here before i actually worked for tesla for seven years during that period so it was experience of the work that we did with lotus and we were working in collaboration with them i think Avaya has made some ripples in the marketplace, but I think it shows the aspiration that we've always had in the business. You know, that type of car we've always been talking about. And with Geely and the investment we've had from our other partners, it's given us that opportunity to kind of open the box of the ideas we had. More than just investment, but I would imagine the association with Polestar and the London Electric Vehicle Company, who are both Geely owned. Does that give you the ability to reach out to them for skills that you need for the car? Is it all pure Lotus? No, we're now part of a big family and it's not just Polestar. We've also got Seft out in Sweden that we work closely with and Geely with GRI, Lincoln Co, those businesses. And for us, We've always had a limitation of the parts we can get to, the technologies and the access. And now I've got a very close working relationship with similar people in the other organisations and we're looking for collaborations through the business because you get efficiencies. But then for Lotus, that obviously gives us a big step forward in technology applications that we can do. And Avaya is a technology step for us. And those gains and technology steps will keep coming on future products. That's interesting because I know the relationship between Lotus cars... Lotus Engineering, stuff that you learn from Lotus Cars is transferable directly to Lotus Engineering and you will sell to other people. Is that how it works? Have I read that right? Correct, yeah. Lotus has got a lot of skills, a lot of very skillful people. I mean, you've had experience of the dynamics of the products since you've been here. Yeah. And those skills are transferable to other parts of the business. So it's not just a one-way Lotus taken from the Geely Group. It's also the opposite way. We are working on Geely products, Geely projects that we've got going on, and we're looking to share our skills across the business. And again, Lotus is renowned for lightweighting technology, dynamics, ride and handling. That's the type of thing that we can go and sell to other customers, but also within the group. Let's talk about the pearl in the oyster. Let's talk about the Avaya. The facts and figures are extraordinary. A £2 million hypercar to start off with that is capable of 200 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. That is pure electric It weighs a little over 1,600 kilos and has a range of 400 kilometres, 250 miles, and can be recharged in something like 12 minutes to 80% of its full charge. It's witchcraft, isn't it? How do you do that? First of all, the weight issue. Is that something you can tell me about? How do you make a car with those sort of performance abilities that is battery powered that light what are you using tell me about the batteries i guess i'm asking (laughs) as always 
BEV vehicles are renowned for being heavy because of the transmission and the battery packs you have in there. So in our ethos of lightweighting, this will be a heavy Lotus. There is no doubt about it compared to our other models, but it will be a light car in the segment that we're looking to go into. So that's what we do. So some of the things that we've used are the materials. So it's a carbon fibre body, carbon fibre monocoque. So it's very strong, very safe for the occupant, but it gives us that weight saving. We've also looked at part of the crash structure we've integrated into the monocoque as well so that there's a serviceable part so that you don't have to throw away the whole monocoque if there's an incident with the car but we reduce joints so everywhere and we always challenge each other the ethos is if one part can do two jobs that's great if you can do three you're doing very well we don't like one part doing one job if we can help it so that is an ingrained mentality in our design and it starts with russell at the design stage you know we have very early engineering input to the design so that we can simplify the interfaces of the car so that we get those weight savings throughout it sounds like colin chapman speaking from the other side you know still it runs right the way through Lotus, doesn't it? Their ethos. When you walk in from Lotus reception and you come up to the stairs where the offices we're talking today, there's a big picture of Colin Chapman at the bottom of those stairs. I look at that every day and the whole of the Lotus workforce that are in engineering walk past that picture every day. And it is ingrained, you know, that we are nimble in ingenuity we have in the business. And that's our culture that we want to try and keep with everybody that's coming in new and everybody that's been here previously. Has it been difficult reaching as high as the Avaya? I mean, it's a challenging project, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, there aren't that many in terms of competitors. I can only think of two cars in the same sort of sphere. Are they targets? Do you start with a spec? It has to do this? Absolutely. We have an attributes department. They will set attributes and targets that we want to meet. We do look through competitive vehicles and we look at whether we want to be class leading competitive or amongst the leaders and we set our standards based on that because there's always a compromise you can't have everything on every car because if that was possible it would be done i think what we wanted to do as part of the new lotus if you like that's under geely you'll see that we've kind of simplified set out our culture and our structure and we've got this program called vision 80 in 2018 we were 70 years old so we set out a plan for 10 years of where we want to take the business and This Halo product was a very, very early milestone in there because we wanted to say Lotus is here. This is the technology we can bring to the industry. This is what we can do. We can be a bit disruptive as well. You know, we're in a position where we can make decisions very quickly here. And that gives us the opportunity to produce cars like Avaya. I've always described Lotus as disruptors, right from Colin Chapman's tenure. He was the ultimate disruptor, wasn't he? You question everything. Can we do this? Let's find a new way of doing it and challenging the big boys. In his case, Ferrari. In your case, I don't know, Rimac, Pininfarina with the Batista. Those are the only electric rivals I can think of to the Avaya. How have you had to restructure the buildings here at Hethel? What's changing here to build that car? And how much of it is actually built here or assembled here and commissioned by specialists elsewhere? The vehicle's going to be manufactured at Hethel. A lot of the supply chains come in from abroad. So, for instance, the manufacturer of the monocoque body is also doing the body panels. So they will assemble the car at their facility. They'll paint the car there and then they'll do the quality checks for gap and flush and finish and everything. Then it gets disassembled, then comes back to Hethel. So it's kind of a puzzle that goes together, comes apart, gets shipped, we put it back together again. A CKD. (laughs) Well, yeah, but it's because of the supply chain loop. For it to get all the way here and us to do quality checks and then send it back is not ideal. So these are very low volume, 
high-value cars. So the care that we're going to put into all of these elements of the manufacturing process, the supply chain, and then the manufacturing is as high as you know people would expect for the product. We are building new facilities at Lotus. There's a big investment program going on. There's factories that have been built. A new facility has been built specifically for Avaya, which will be done by the end of this month, ready to start producing cars next month. And we've got another main production facility that's going in for future products that's coming as well, plus things like we're putting in a 700-seater restaurant for the staff because of the staff numbers that have grown. It's just brilliant, really. It's so exciting to see the changes that are going on. It's a very, very fast-moving business at the moment. I get a sense of pride and confidence here. And it's not just for the 130 advisors that you're going to build. I love the idea that it's a Type 130 Lotus, so you build 130 of them. Beyond that, what happens next? You know, 130 cars is not going to sustain this company for the next 10 years. You've talked about the project to mark the 80th anniversary of Lotus. How's that going to manifest? What sort of cars or what sort of planning is going on for those cars here? Well... You won't be surprised that I won't tell you about the product lineup that's <laughs> in place. Yeah, obviously won't catch me out with that one. But to give you a bit of an idea of some measure of scale, you know, I've been in my job for a year and a half now, and there was 170 people in engineering and PMO when I took over. The end of last year, that was over 400. By the end of this year, it'll be 600. So we haven't brought in over 400 people to design the Avaya. So there are future projects that are coming through. We've said that electrification will be part of our product range in the future. So the Avaya was a technology demonstrator for what we can do, but that will flow down. So we've got a lot of work on. I have a lot of projects on at the moment that we're running. So it's very exciting, but you'll have to watch this space as far as announcements on future products. And I guarantee I will be. <laughs> Matt, I think you've told me everything I need to know, really. I'd, actually, I'd love to know more, but I know you can't tell yeah. me. But I should be watching very closely. Thank you very much indeed, and good luck to Lotus. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you today. Well, I didn't get too much detail on whether there will be a new Evora replacement for the Elise and Exige, and if Lotus really are going to make a sporting SUV, as has been rumoured. But they did confirm that a range of new cars will emerge from Hethel before too long. Despite being under new ownership, it's clear that Lotus's core values are absolutely intact. And that whatever comes out of Hethel, I'm certain the great late Colin Chapman would approve of the energy that's going into a car mark that many car nuts, like me, absolutely adore. Let's hope that under Chinese ownership, we can all watch Lotus blossom. I'm Gareth Jones. See ya. Send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!